Well, good morning, Spring Creek. Glad you're here today. You know, from the very first Sunday we started, we put a number on every message. We do that in part for, we've always had cassette tapes, which led to CDs and DVDs and things like that. But it makes it easier for people to find the message. And this weekend is message number 1,500 since we started. So it, it, we're actually celebrating next week our 29-year anniversary. Isn't that amazing? Now, depending on who you consult, typically a senior pastor, their tenure in the U.S. is somewhere between six and ten years, depending on what survey you're looking at. So after next week, I begin my 30th year as your pastor. Now, I, I want to tell you something. I, a long time ago, a long time ago, I prayed and I said, God, I would really enjoy having a place where I could invest the rest of my life to see what could happen if you stay in one place for as long as you possibly can. Because you see, I, I'm, I'm the product of churches that had turnovers in pastors every two and three years. And that totally destabilizes a church. But I didn't know what it was like to sit under the leadership of a senior pastor my entire life. And I wanted that. I wanted to be able to give that away. And I'm just so grateful he's allowed me to do that here at Spring Creek. We're wrapping up our series, The Elephant in the Room. Today's message I'm calling Total Trust. And that's really what I want to begin with. I want to talk to you about trust. I mean, I can say, and I do say, I trust God. I totally trust God. And those are words, and they, they flow right off the tongue. They easily uh, escape my lips. But if I really trust God, how do I demonstrate that trust? I mean, have you thought about that? I mean, what tangible ways do you trust God? Beyond my words, how do I demonstrate trust through my, my actions? I mean, think about it. At its most basic level, trust is really the agreement of my words and my behavior. When those come together, they constitute the basis of trust. I'll give you an example. I, I've got a stool here this morning. You might have been wondering if I was extra tired today. I'm not. Uh, I have this stool here, and I can say I trust this stool to bear my weight. In fact, I can even wax eloquent on that. I could talk about, you know, it, it's sturdy, it's well-made, it's a good brand. The store I bought it from told me it would bear my weight. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of things about how much I trust this stool, but nothing demonstrates my trust like this, right? I mean, when, when my behavior aligns behind my words, then you know I mean my words because I'm demonstrating my trust right now. I, I let my weight rest on the stool. I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, you, you hear somebody say, I really love the poor, but they give no time, no energy, no money to helping the poor. Do you, be, do you people really believe that person loves the poor? I mean, they're just words without actions to back it up, right? The husband that says, I really love my wife, but they're never home. They're never present to her. They, they, they talk about her. They're caustic. Do you believe the words or the behavior? We believe the behavior, right? Because the words mean nothing if there's not behavior to back it up. Trust is not just about the words we say. Trust is about the behavior that aligns behind those words. So back to my original question. How do I demonstrate my trust in God? I can say I believe his promises are true, his love unfailing, his fidelity unwavering. But as I make those claims, when and where and how am I showing through my life 
that I really depend on that to be true? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to money. Do I really trust God's promises? Do I trust that he means what he, what he says? Do I believe, like what he said in Matthew 6, that if I put him first financially, that he'll take care of the rest of my needs? And do I believe what Jesus said? Do I believe that the issue in life comes down to a choice between God and mammon? That the choice in life is not a choice between God and the devil. That's a no-brainer. We're going to choose God. It's more insidious than that. It is, will I choose the almighty dollar or will I choose the God of heaven? Do I believe what Jesus said, that there's a spiritual reality behind money that works at cross purposes to God? Do I believe God's constant warnings in Scripture to watch out, to be on our guard against how dangerous and deceptive this sin actually is? Do I believe God's word when it warns me more about this sin, the sin around money, than it does any other sin? And if I believe that, how do I demonstrate that trust? In other words, does my financial behavior reflect a commitment to my kingdom or God's kingdom? So what I want to do today is I just want to get back to the word. I want to get back to the Bible. I want to show you what the Bible says from the very beginning, and in particular, why giving matters. Now, here's the first question. Is tithing, that is giving 10% of one's income, just a matter of Old Testament law? Because I've heard that. I've heard that from dozens of people over the years. The 29 years I've been your pastor, I can count on it. Somebody, especially when I'm teaching about money, will come up to me and say, tithing is Old Testament law. We're not under law. We're under grace. And while it's true that tithing was eventually codified into the law, the practice itself originated long before the law. In fact, 430 years before the law, it started with Abraham in the book of Genesis. Here's that passage. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That is the valley of kings or the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high and he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The fact that Abraham was the very first person in the Bible to tithe invalidates this idea that tithing is just Old Testament law because Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law. It's also important to point out, Abraham doesn't do this because he's compelled to do it, made to do it, because of some moral obligation or a law that dictates this is what he must do. Instead, he does this spontaneously and he does it naturally. Now, there's something else significant about this verse. The very first gift of 10% in the Bible is clearly tied to caring for God's workers because Melchizedek is a priest of God. So the need being addressed here is not the temple, it's not the ministry, it's not care for the poor, and all of those things matter to God. We agree with that. The primary concern that motivates Abraham's giving is caring for the one who's doing the work of God. And that concern is unchanged from the Old Testament to the New Testament. By the way, in Genesis 28, Jacob is also recorded as giving a tithe. And again, it's not under law. It predates law. This is a practice that the people of God participated in before the law. So when someone says tithing is just Old Testament law, what they're doing is twisting scriptures to twist to make their point of view, but it's not actually what the Bible teaches. So that leads to the question, why was the tithe codified into the law? 
Ever since the time of Moses, God has appointed a special class of people, of workers, who were to lead Israel in worship. They were the priesthood. And God instituted a tithe, that is, every Israeli was to give 10% of their grain, their flocks, or their money to support God's workers. Now, all these priests came from the same tribe, the tribe of Levi. So here we have this mentioned in the book of Numbers. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. In return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. Or how about this in Deuteronomy? The Levitical priests, indeed, the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance within Israel. They shall live off the food offerings presented to Yahweh, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their federal fellow Israelites. Yahweh is their inheritance as he promised. So these verses are super clear. God appointed the tithe to support the Levites. In fact, it's often referred to as the Levite tithe. But why does this even matter? I mean, what God said is the Levites would have no inheritance in the land. In other words, they have no other way of providing for themselves if they're not provided for by the people of God. So let me explain. In all of Israel, Levi, there's 12 tribes in Israel, right? Levi is the only tribe that did not receive an inheritance of land in the promised land. And we see this throughout Scripture. There's many references to it. There's even a reference in the psalm. Asaph, who's a Levite, a leader of worship, he writes this. He said, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You ever heard that before where people say the Lord is my portion, the Lord is my portion? You realize that Asaph means this literally. That he has no portion in all the land of Israel. His only portion, his only inheritance is God himself. So why was the tribe of Levi singled out in this way? Well, God chose them as his special representatives because they're the only tribe of the 12 tribes that did not fall away during a time of great temptation. So if you go back to your Old Testament, you remember the story about the golden calf. So the golden calf is a story when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he's going to receive the law from God, directly from the hand of God. Remember this? It was in the movie Ten Commandments. You know, the whole fire thing and all that. It was really cool. That was not actual footage, it was a recreation. But anyway, so they go up there, and while he's there, it takes longer than what was expected. And because it took longer, the people grow disinterested. They build an idol of a calf and say, this is our God that led us out of Israel. When Moses comes down and finds out what the people did, this is what happened. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them go out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. All the other tribes were full bent on worshiping this idol, but the Levites rallied to Moses. And a little, little later in the same chapter, this is what Moses said. You have been set apart to the Lord today. For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. So get this. In return for their loyalty, because they stayed loyal to God when the rest of the tribes fell away, God said, I want you to be my special representatives. And they proved their faithfulness by their actions, right? It's not just their words. It's their actions. And because of that, God said, your inheritance is going to be something far more significant than just a silly plot of land. Which means when the children of Israel went into the promised land, Joshua did not divide the land into 12 equal portions. He divided it into 11. 
because the Levites would not get a portion. Instead, the Levites, every tribe would, be, would have to dedicate a portion of their land for the Levites to live on. Now, why does God do this? God does not want this special class, these people who are truly faithful to him, he doesn't want them isolated in one tiny pocket of the country. Instead, he wants the Levites to be living among all the people. They live close to God, they'll keep the nation close to God. Does that make sense? So this is what God did. You're not going to get a land to your own. You're going to live on the land of the other tribes. Because they weren't given land, they were entitled to some special benefits. The tithes and the offerings to God. Now the tithes included grain offerings and meat offerings. So every time, you know, the children of Israel come to the temple and they sacrifice, those sacrifices weren't just thrown away. It was Texas barbecue day. I mean, they would, they would make that, and all the Levites would enjoy the feast because all the meat is there, and it's for them to consume. This is the biblical basis for buying your pastor a steak dinner, okay? I'm just telling you <laughs> right up front. So it helps to understand when you read verses like Malachi when it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there might be food in my house. If the people of God were not bringing the offerings of grain and meat, then there would be no food in God's house and the Levites would starve because everyone else had farmlands and herds to, to provide for themselves. But they did not. They had a place to live among the other tribes, but they did not have vast holdings of land where they could have animals and they could have huge crops for themselves. Do you see what God is doing here? He puts the Levites in a position of forced dependency. They are absolutely dependent on the generosity of God's people. Either the people of God come through or else they're forced to abandon the work of God and the Levites have to fend for themselves because their families have to eat. Now, sadly, this happened throughout Israel's history. At times, the Levites were neglected. It happened under Hezekiah. The people had turned away to idols, and, and the temple was in disrepair. The roof was leaking. The doors were sagging. The plaster was coming off. And there was only a handful of priests maintaining the most basic operations at the temple. This is what the scripture says. This is what Hezekiah says. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. It happened in Nehemiah's day. Remember the whole book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem because it's laying in ruins. But at the end of that book, it says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. You see the pattern. When God's people neglect to do their part, the work of God suffers because the Levites, the workers of God, have to be able to provide for themselves and their families. And if the people God won't do it, they have to do it themselves. So again and again, throughout the Old Testament, we're told, don't neglect God's workers. Deuteronomy 12, 19, be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. Deuteronomy 14, also you shall not neglect the Levite who's in your own town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. Bottom line, God expects his workers to be taken care of. That's the biblical basis for the tithe. Now you should know that there's two other tithes talked about in the Old Testament. One is called the festival tithe, which was unique to Israel because they had seven national feast days and those had to be funded. So there was a tenth that was given in addition to the Levite tithe to fund those festivals. There was a third tithe that was only collected every third year. So this is like uh, three and a third percent every year you would give and it was to care for their poor. It was Israel's national welfare program. So let's move from the Old Testament to the New. 
And let's hear what Jesus and Paul have to say about this. What does any of this have to do with the New Testament? So let me say right up front, pastors are different than priests. The Old Testament is different from the New. But what is surprisingly similar about both Testaments is both of them agree that the workers that God has appointed to do his work need to be provided for. Here's Jesus speaking to this issue. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. So here Jesus is describing the missions of the 12. As the 12 disciples go out, he tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. He says, freely you receive, freely give. In other words, I gave this to you, now you give it away. But then he says right after that, he says, take no money along. He says, don't take any gold, silver, or copper. And then he adds, for the worker is worthy of his support. Now, the clear implication of what Jesus is saying here is, is, is obvious. The people who do the work of Christ ought to be supported by the people they minister to. And Jesus is saying, you shouldn't have to worry about money as long as you're doing my work. Why? Because you're worthy of the support you receive. And by the way, Jesus says this also in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, we all know that Jesus and his disciples were doing ministry, and we also know that they had to be financially provided for. Jesus didn't do what he did for free. He, was, he, he had to be able to eat just like everybody else had to eat. He had to have money. In fact, in John 12 and 13, the Bible says that Jesus and his team had a money box. And we know they had a money box because the Bible tells us in John that Judas was stealing from the money box. So they had a money box. Where did they get their money? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Luke the historian documents it for us. And if you don't know this, this might actually surprise you or shock you. Look at this. Some women were with him. They had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator. Susanna and many other women. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Now this is amazing. In an age of patriarchy, when the rights of men ruled supreme and women were treated as property... The Bible tells us that we owe the ministry of Jesus and his disciples to a group of women. There's not one man mentioned in all the Gospels as ever having financially supported Jesus' ministry. These women, through their own businesses and financial connections, had the vision to see what Jesus and the disciples were doing, and they helped to finance it. Let that sink in. We have the record of the gospel ministry of Jesus and his disciples because of the good financial stewardship of women. Amen? Amen. Amen. I tell you, God, you, you need to know that even in an age and a time when people were gender blind, God is not. God, God is for men and God is for women, and he sees no difference. So let's shift gears for a minute. Let's look at the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. We discover that, that Paul builds his theology around the teaching of Jesus and makes a direct correlation between the priesthood of the Old Testament and the pastor in the New. Here's that verse. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share what isn't offered on the altar? 
in the same way. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul is making the point that God's workers for all time have benefited from the offerings of the people of God. The priests in the Old Testament, they shared in all the sacrifices and all the offerings that were made at the temple. They got all the tithe. It was given to them because they had to be provided for. And Paul says, now, in the same way, no difference the people who work administering the gospel should benefit from the material blessings of the people they minister to. So then he adds this. He says, the Lord has commanded. Now, when he says Lord, he's talking about Jesus. So he's talking about something Jesus said. And, he, and he's very specific here. He says, the Lord commanded. He doesn't say Jesus suggested this. He doesn't say Jesus thought this might be a good idea. He doesn't say Jesus was spitballing ideas around us one time and he threw this one out there to see what we thought. He said Jesus commanded that those who preach the gospel should be receiving their living from the gospel. Where does Jesus command that? In the verses I just read to you about him sending out the 12. He said take no money with you. The worker is worthy of their support. And Paul says that's the commandment of Jesus. You and I are supposed to care for God's workers. Of course, this is not the only place in the New Testament that says this. In the book of Galatians, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. In other words, there should be a reciprocal relationship between the people and the pastor. The pastor shares the good things of the word of God. The people share out of their material benefit for the pastors. The Bible also says this, For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we, this is Jewish people, ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers with the truth. Or even this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. That word honor there is where we get the term honorarium. They're worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So the Bible says here that an elder, which is another term for pastor, should be honored and valued. In fact, they're, they're deserving of a double honor. Now there's this 5th century theologian, his name was Theodoret, and he said that word means better or greater. A double honor is a more greater honor or, or, or more honor. What he's saying is an elder, a pastor who works hard at preaching and teaching should be highly respected and well paid. In other words, the church should never operate a sweatshop. We don't pay pastors a starvation wage. When pastors serve the church well, they should receive an ample wage, not one that just lets them scrape by. Paul says it would be cruel to muzzle an ox while it's treading grain. So many times an ox, because of its weight, was used to separate the husk from the grain. And they would walk on all this grain to do that. And he says you wouldn't muzzle an ox. You let that ox freely graze from that grain. And yet we oftentimes will muzzle one of God's workers and say, no, you get none of the blessings you helped to create. Now let me pause for a minute because I can sense tensions are rising in the room. This is not a passive-aggressive sermon. I'm not saying this because I think I'm treated badly or any of the pastors here. In fact, I'll tell you, this church does a really good job of honoring their pastors. What they do, uh, our, our, our elder board, they come together, we get, we get an annual report of churches across the nation based on size, based on budget, based on years of experience. And our church has been really good to try to say, hey, let's, let's do a good job of keeping our pay scale in line with what other churches are doing across the nation. But I think it's important for you to hear and for you to understand God's heart for his workers and the obligation of God's church to provide for them. This is the primary reason for the tithe. 
And it's a primary reason for giving that both Jesus and Paul underscored. Now, you also need to know there's nobody at this church getting rich off the gospel. We all live in average homes. I got no mansion except in heaven, okay? I drive an eight-year-old Camry. I shop in the same place as you shop. Look at me at Target and Walmart. You'll see me there all the time, okay? <laughs> We're not getting rich off the gospel. But you need to understand there is a correlation between honor and pay. They're intertwined and they're interrelated. To give you an, uh, an illustration from another field, sometime back, Newsweek magazine did an article on teachers and how we disrespect them. And they made this comment that has always stuck with me. I wrote it down. One reason for the disrespect, of course, is money. If we underpay someone, we obviously don't respect them. Can I hear an amen from our teachers? Can I hear an amen from all people who support teachers? Amen. All right. So what I'm saying, the same thing is true about spiritual leaders. If we don't respect someone, we don't pay them well. Bottom line, that's the truth. Now let's be honest. There's always someone, when I do a message or a series like this, that wants to argue. And they'll try to pick apart everything I have to say. And they'll just say, there's no way I believe in tithing. I don't believe in giving 10% of your money to God. And over the last 29 years, here's what I've discovered about most of those people. What they think is if I can invalidate tithing, then I don't have to give it all. And I just want you to know, based on what Jesus said and Paul said, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's no way you can say that the New Testament justifies being stingy. It's not. The Bible is really clear. We're supposed to support God's work and God's workers. So giving is important. I'm not going to fight you on tithing. I'm not going to do that. I, I, I believe with all of my heart one of the primary reasons we give is to support God's workers. Tithing began long before the law was ever given, and it was to support God's workers. The, the tithe, the Levite tithe, was to support God's workers. Jesus commanded us to support God's workers. Paul reminded us that Jesus commanded us to support God's workers. Giving is important. And I'm not going to discount it to make you feel more comfortable. And I'm also not going to get up here and play some game that this war between mammon and God is not real. Because it's a tug of war and mammon sometimes wins that tug of war and you don't want mammon to win in your life. But here's the thing. Even people in the world unapologetically advocate tithing. I read a lot about finances. Last count, which was maybe 10 years ago, I'd read over 300 books on, 300 books on finance. I mean, this is something I want to get right. This is one I, something I want to be true about and biblical in every way. I read the latest stuff about it all the time. I want to be informed. Susie Orman is a powerful writer about finances. And she has this one book called Courage to be Rich. And I was shocked when I read this in her book. She wrote this. We in this land of prosperity ought to give away at least 10% of our earnings. 10% is our obligation. After 10%, we start being charitable. Friends, when financial planners in the world advocate tithing unapologetically, why as the church should we shrink from that when we have the promises of God to back it up? John Roger and Peter McWilliams, they were phenomenal writers, wrote New York Times bestsellers like Susie Orman has. They wrote a book called uh, Do It, uh, which was a motivational book, great book. And then they did a follow-up book to that called Wealth 101. As best I can tell from what these guys write, they're not Christians even in the remotest sense of the world. But this is what they wrote. When should you tithe? This is in their book, Wealth 101. 
Secular book. When should you tithe? As the saying goes, pay God first. If you pay your bills every two weeks, let the first check be your tithing check. Tithing is a way of showing your gratitude for whoever or whatever you feel is responsible for the gift of life. See, they don't even know who that is. But they know you should be giving. And then they say, it's paying your rent to live in this world. It's your share of the air you breathe, the color of the trees, the sun in the morning, the moon at night. It's also the most tangible way of saying thank you. I have more than what I need. Friends, when people in the world understand the importance of regular sacrificial giving, I just want you to know, as a church, I've got all of God's promises to back that up, and I'm going to stand on that. And that leads to this final thought, the link between our values and our valuables. A lot of people say, you know, if you want me to give more, God's going to have to give me more. If he gives me more, I'll give more. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. The problem is, the longer you wait to get more, it's really not going to happen. You're going to wait a long time. There's a, a financial, and he's an economist. His name is H.F. Clark. And he talks about what he's observed in his research as the 25% rule. Have you ever heard of the 25% rule? 25% rule says that every person, regardless of how much you make, longs to make about 25% more than that. They, they feel like that's, you know, the good life when I get 25% more. And then when they make that amount of money, they want 25% more of that to really live the good life. Do you know how much money it takes on average till you get to the point where you no longer want 25% more? We don't know because nobody's ever achieved that number yet. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, you know, he's ultimate, he's billionaire. He's not content with his billions. You know, he's willing to starve his workers in his warehouses, but he's just not got enough money yet, you know? I mean, it doesn't matter how much you want. You always want more. The truth is, people in this country who make the least money are the most generous people statistically on average year after year. The people who give away most of their income, who give the greatest percentage of their income away, are always the poorest of the poor. The middle class are not that way. The one percenters are definitely not that way. A one percenter may give a $100,000 gift, but that's like a dime to you and me. I mean, it really is, it's just nothing. But the poor, they give generously. And the truth is, as your income rises, you tend to give less, not more. So let me just tell you from the heart. For me, tithing is not the ceiling. It's not the limit. Tithing to me is the floor. It's my starting point. Brenda and I start off giving at least 10% to this church. This church alone, we give 10%. But we're committed to sponsoring our kids in Africa, 30-hour famine. We support a disability ministry in California. We help families and friends. There are ministries that ask for money from time to time. We give to those things as well. We don't see tithing as some kind of legal obligation. That's our starting point. We go on from there. And you know what? We do that even when insurance companies treat us badly. Even though I've had two major surgeries in the last year and a half. Even though Brenda and I had the good fortune of both breaking a crown in our tooth back to back this year. I mean, it's just unreal the kind of setbacks you can have financially. But I have learned that giving first to God is the single best investment I have ever made. You couldn't talk me out of giving because God proves his faithfulness again and again. The math doesn't always work. On paper, I think, God, how did we survive this year? But it's happened. And I'm not behind on my bills. I have excellent credit. I mean, all of that. God takes care of us because we put him first. So it comes back to the question I asked you a minute ago. Do I trust God? Or do I trust God? Do I rest on his promises? Are there actions that align behind the words that I speak? 
Do I really trust God? Do I let my life rest on his promises? There's one more verse and I'll wrap up. It's something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's this right here. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know what he's saying? Is there is this undeniable, inextricable link between my heart and my wallet. Where one goes, the other goes. They live in tandem with one another. Where your treasure is, where you put your money, your heart goes. Where your heart goes, your money goes. That's the way it happens. And you know this to be true. When you love shoes, wow, money goes right with it. When you love tools, money's right there. When you love computers, it's right there. Tell me your love, I'll tell you where your money's going. I love my wife. Guess what? She's got it. She does. No denying it. Since the first time I fell in love with her, she had that. Here's the deal. God wants your heart. Your heart is more important than anything else. Your heart is the wellspring of life, according to the Bible. Your heart directs your life. Your heart is everything to God. He wants your heart. He wants your heart undivided. He wants your heart loyally. He wants you to trust him with all your heart. And if he wants to get your heart, he knows he's got to get this too. Because they live together. Where one goes, the other follows. They do not ever live apart from one another. Your money's never going to go someplace your heart's not going. Your heart's never going to go someplace your money's not going. They live together. God wants your heart. So he wants you to un understand. This, it represents our life. You know why? Because we go and we work and we spend our talents, abilities, our energy in earning money. It's an exchange of a part of our life to get those resources. And so God says it matters where those resources go. So I'm praying for you and I'm praying for me and I'm praying for this church that God would continue to bless it as he has. That we would continue to know his abundant hand of goodness on our life because we have a church that does take care of its pastors that believes that they matter, that respects them, that believes that their work matters, that doesn't want to operate a sweatshop and see us scrape by, but also wants to continue to extend the gospel to the furthest reaches of the world. And that's only going to happen as God gets our total heart. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for this time we've had together. I thank you for your word and its truth. I pray in whatever way, God, that you are meeting with us right now, that you would have complete and unhindered access to our heart. That, God, it would be yours, it would be yours completely. That we would trust our life, not just the words that we say, but the actions that back it up, that say that we truly believe, God, your promises are true. That, God, you are faithful, your love is never failing. That, God, you will always provide if we put you first. In Jesus' name, amen.